0: The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Ren Fazewski. And I'm your advocate host, Molly Carter. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us.
1: This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find
0: out more at dlcb.org. Molly, I am so stoked for our episode today. You and
1: me both, Ren. I mean, this our next guest today is just probably one of the most um, knowledgeable and invigorating interviews we've ever had here on the podcast, and I'm so
0: excited for everybody to listen. She is Karen Brim. She is the Acting Access and Functional Needs Officer Uh, for the Virginia Department of Emergency Management. She is on loan from the Virginia Department for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. She's basically the most important person in the pandemic that you haven't really heard about in terms of disability access. She's gonna (laughs) talk to us.
1: Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, yes, absolutely. You have that right. And especially um, I was like really fascinated to hear that Karen um, actually started this job right when um, sort of COVID hit and it's like just taken the transition totally um, in stride. So I think uh, we're just in for such an education today. I know I didn't anticipate how much I learned, but um, we definitely learned so much from her.
0: Yeah, we're going to be talking about emergency management, accessibility. We're going to be talking about able-bodied privilege. We're talking COVID-19 and disaster relief. We're going to cover all of it, but before we jump into that, let's check out Disability in the News.
2: In 2017, the Access Board, a federal agency devoted to the accessibility for people with disabilities along with the Food and Drug administration, created the standards for accessible medical diagnostic equipment. These standards have yet to be adopted by any federal agencies, but the National Council on Disability wants the Department of Justice and the Department of Health and Human Services to crack down on these standards. The National Council on Disability compiled their recommendations and findings into a 75-page report as being presented to Congress and the President regarding barriers people with disabilities face in health care. Basic barriers, like examination tables, scales, and energy equipment, are typically inaccessible for people with physical disabilities. Currently, individuals with disabilities can file complaints with the Justice Department and the Department of Health and Human Services, other inaccessible medical equipment and diagnostic equipment, but the National Council on Disability said this remedy is inadequate. The National Council on Disability will continue advocating for new standards to be enforced. So those with disabilities, we're proper and adequate medical care.
0: All right, we are ready to get into it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Karen. We really appreciate you being here today. Sure, no problem. Thank you for having me. I know we have a lot to cover, so I think we'll just jump right in. Um, we introduced our audience to the fact that your role is that of an access and functional needs officer. Tell us a little bit about that and what the, exactly that means.
3: Sure. Um, so the access and functional needs officer, which I'll call AFNO for short, um, is a role that's relatively new at the Department of Emergency Management, um, which again I'll abbreviate VDEM. It's just easier. Um, at and at the start of the COVID-19 state of emergency, that role was actually temporarily vacant. And as the community services manager at Virginia department for the deaf and hard of hearing, I had, um, was already serving as my department's liaison to department of emergency management. And I had shadowed the former AFNO. And so when COVID hit, VDEM asked me to become acting access and functional needs officer. So what's what that's meant is that I support and assist the the unified command and the incident management personnel uh, on matters that are related to people with disabilities and others with access and functional needs. So that term access and functional needs is actually an umbrella term that's used um, by emergency managers. And it includes not only people with disabilities, but also um, seniors, very young children, populations who may have limited English proficiency, limited access to transportation, limited access to financial resources um, that would help them prepare for or respond to and recover from an emergency should it happen to them. So it's it's uh, again an umbrella term Um, but of course there's a huge emphasis on accessibility um, that uh, you know is uh, pertinent to the uh, disability community.
1: That's fascinating. Um, It sounds like an amazing role and especially since you um, took it on during COVID. I'm sure um, a lot has come up in that role. I'm curious as to um, I'm sure you, you know work on a large team, and I'm curious as to how you advise um, your colleagues, whether that be subject matter experts or advocates um, in in their day-to-day, particularly since COVID, and um, whether or not, you know, especially since COVID, when people have started to gradually um, go back into the field, what are some ways that you advise them, whether they're in the field working directly with clients or in the office?
3: Right, so um, I used the term unified command before, um, which really means that during COVID-19, many state agencies, local government entities, supporting organizations have all collaborated together in what they sort of are terming a whole of government approach um, to a really complex situation. And so many of those sort of separate systems had not really collaborated in that way before. And a lot of the people in those systems had not really applied an accessibility lens to the work that they do before or really actively included it in the emphasis that was already there um, moving towards equity and inclusion. And so um, the visibility of the AFNO position has allowed me to emphasize that accessibility um, can be and is life-saving. So during COVID, that's meant that I've, Um, Sort of gradually over time become a point of contact for individuals in state and local governments and other stakeholder groups um, so that critical needs and concerns and issues can be related um, to uh, that can that are related to accessibility can be identified and then referred to the resources that are available to assist in finding a solution. So, I've rarely solved problems myself during this whole process, but I've been really well positioned to be able to provide resources, guidance, and information to people who might be experts in their own fields, um, whether it be emergency management or public health, um, but they've not really been exposed to some of those accessibility principles before. Um, The resources have often come from Sister Disability uh, Services Agency representatives who are themselves subject matter experts in accessibility for their particular populations. Um, And that's been particularly from the Department uh, for the Blind and Vision Impaired, the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, and the Virginia Board for People with Disabilities, among many others. And I'd I'd have to give a particular um, shout out, thanks to um, Dr. Susan Elmore from DBHDS and Peggy Fields from DBVI, who have been invaluable to me um, and and the effort toward accessibility uh, for our COVID efforts. They're members of um, Department of Emergency Management's uh, Access and Functional Needs Advisory Committee. um, And they and some other committee members have really been the backbone of our ability to solve problems and uh, provide resources and information uh, to make the whole effort um, more accessible.
0: I think one of the particular things that you kind of said pinged to me was this idea of an accessibility lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that, you know, there's so many different experts doing their own thing, of course, but that their viewpoint isn't. You know that their their viewpoint is is not including this, or it's sort of like not in frame when they consider mm-hmm. their particular area of expertise. Um, and with vulnerable populations, specifically those with disabilities, again, I, I think that's great. This idea that ex- accessibility can be a life or death issue, like it can be absolutely of utmost importance. Uh, can you give some examples as to um, this? how you've provided this lens of accessibility and, and how you've um, you know, assisted others in, in, in understanding accessibility when it comes to their work.
3: Sure, <laughs> um, I, I think uh, the main thing is to ask really good questions. And I know that sounds um, sort of simplistic, but what I've noticed is that um, as people are, are going about their daily work, often they haven't asked themselves um, who it is that they're serving and included in that group of of people that they're serving, um, people who are uh, going to have access needs that should be met. And so if they ask themselves, um, uh, who is my consumer, and make sure that they know that their consumer group will include people with disabilities, then they can start to be planning for that. And um, that's how you go about operationalizing an accessibility lens It means you always ask that next question which is I've got this great service or I've got this great product or I have this wonderful information that I want to share have I packaged it in a way that is accessible to people with uh, sensory disabilities have I packaged it in a way that is um, uh, uh, they are able to receive it and then is the content of that information that that message um, is it being related in a, in a receivable fashion too? So, it, is it in plain language so that people with um, uh, cognitive disabilities or, or um, uh, uh, processing issues are able to more readily understand that? And again, the AFN lens is is more than just um, people with disabilities. It's also people who have limited English proficiency. So, it's oftentimes also been asking the question: um, You know, has this been translated in in um, And if it has been translated, what languages? And so, um, you know, it's just kind of always asking that next question. Uh, The great thing is that as this process has evolved, um, and again, my scope is only um, for COVID related issues. um, And it's, you know, in a way it's been a broad effort, but it is a very um, narrow focus on, on a particular emergency. But I've seen people learn uh, to themselves start to ask that next question instead of me always being the one to raise my hand and be the one to to ask the question So people have have learned uh, that if you are uh, asking that question early in the process then it uh, it means that in the the end result is that your product is going to be more accessible to people
0: I think that's a really. Mm-hmm important and fascinating perspective it's it's kind of tangential but it reminds me a little bit of universal design this idea that it you know when you're building a house or a building it should automatically be part of that process of making it accessible and obviously sometimes it's top down because the process already exists but sort of uh baking that into whatever function you're working with um Yeah, that's just the, I was just thinking about, this is sort of universal design at an emergency management level.
3: Yes, exactly. So it's been, um, you know, that recognition that ideally during an emergency is is not the best time to be figuring out how to make your services and resources accessible, right? Um, The best time is during the planning stages. And, you know, that means that if accessibility principles are already an integral part of the way that you're doing business, then during an emergency, um, they're going to be more reflexive, right? So there's a phrase in emergency management that I really love, which is that there are blue skies times, and then there are times of disaster or emergency. And so if during blue skies times you have built that in to the way that you do business, then during emergencies, um, then it's it's a given that it is part of uh, of the processes, and um, y- you know you're you're automatically making it. Um, more accessible quicker and easier than you would have otherwise. Um, So, you know, an example of that is, you know, at my own agency at VDDHH, you know, a way that we've baked in, um, you know, captioning and transcription and ASL interpretation into just the way that we do business. Not every organization has that baked in. Um, You know, we serve a a particular population, but um, accessibility is for everyone. So, you know, uh, the way that we've sort of brought some of those um, accessibility practices into, the approach to um, emergency management for COVID, um, you know, bringing that to VDEM and and other agencies in the Unified Command, um, you know, has been really um, uh, well-received. And uh, you know, our, our successes there have been, examples have been that you know, all of the COVID-19 press conferences that the governor has held have had an ASL interpretation provided um, and kept on screen you know, so that the audience can actually see them rather than cutting away from them. Um, and then you know, as an aside, VDEM you know, also their Facebook page, uh, their Facebook feed for the COVID-19 press conferences is uh, simultaneously um, interpreted into Spanish. So there's you know foreign language access there as well. Um, and you know as far as translations are concerned, the executive orders have all been translated into the top six uh, spoken uh, languages other than English. Um, You know, and, and then across other parts of the effort, uh, making sure that um, state run uh, vaccination sites, part of the vetting process was making sure that the sites were um, ADA accessible. That was a, you know, a given and if they were not accessible, then they were not chosen. Um, You know, we've, we've made a lot of progress with um, 508 compliance. Um, And so, uh, you know, messaging campaigns have been made 508 compliant and um, Virginia Board for People with disabilities has assisted um, even when the ACT campaigns um, included Virginians with disabilities in their photo shoot to make sure that we had authentic representation um, and, uh, you know, and an inclusive effort to make sure that everyone was included in the in the um, mitigation efforts to encourage mask wearing and, and encourage social distancing. Um, one other big win that we had uh, as well is my director and I were able to uh, facilitate and assist um, Department of Health to um, institute um, a, a first-in-the-nation capability for our vaccination uh, call center to accept video phone calls from ASL users um, to be able to call directly to the call center and be routed to an ASL user on a video phone to have direct communication about vaccination um, information and registration uh, and with no interpreter needed. And so that was a huge win um, to be able to kind of go that next step and level up on accessibility. Um, So, you know, across the board, it's been, um, you know, sort of a full court press to think of every way that we could make efforts uh, more accessible to, uh, you know, the widest audience possible.
1: That's amazing. I love that you guys had your first like that. That's really um, cool to think about. Um, and also kind of weird to think about that, like that was the first time, um, you know, for something like that. But it's um, amazing how you guys have um, just expanded your resources and particularly what Ren was talking about before with things like, you know, universal design and just, you know, things being given. That is something that we take so seriously here at DLCV because um, that's our you know, job every day, serving the public and particularly serving um, disabled people. I'm curious, when you work with, um, when you interact particularly with um, the able-bodied population or perhaps people you know, coming into your organization who may be new to disability or don't have a lot of exposure, I'm interested in what are some ways that you see able-bodied privilege um, come through in your work and how do you guys as an organization um, combat that when you're dealing with um, people who've had all levels of um, experience with disability.
3: Right now, um, that has been um, well. Full full disclosure: I don't myself identify as a person with disability. Um, you know what I strive to do is to practice allyship. Uh, I believe that you know, ally is a verb, not a noun. Um, You have to, you know, you can't uh, label yourself an ally. You have to act, um, you know, in a manner that is um, supportive and always putting that accessibility lens on as as a primary focus. Um, And so working with people who don't have sort of that background or mindset, um, you know, in my own work, even during COVID and even before, you know, I've seen friends and consumers and coworkers um, that have had to fight for their their access rights, um, but particularly during the pandemic, access to information has unfortunately been one of the most obviously uh, examples of privilege. Um, you know, people who post videos with no captions or transcripts, um, or design graphics or a dashboard or a web app that doesn't have accessibility to screen readers. Um, And because the content creator can see it or hear it themselves, they think it's fine. And so, um, you know, I've seen career um, programmers learning about Section 508 compliance just Mm -hmm. as a new concept during COVID, um, which is pretty staggering. Um, You know, again, it requires them to ask that next question, who's my consumer? And I've, you know, uh, advised for, for everyone that I've come in contact with to keep in mind that they should assume that their audience uh, includes people with mobility disabilities who, uh, you know, need to navigate in wheelchair. They need to assume that their audience includes uh, people who cannot see the screen that they're displaying or people who cannot hear the audio on the Zoom meeting that they're conducting. You know, those kinds of of things have been a a real learning process. Um, You know, it's frustrating that the ADA is over 30 years old and yet oftentimes it's still not you know, applied or understood. Um, but one of the things that has been motivating during these really stressful and you know, at times uh, sort of dark you know, period is that I've actually been able to watch a person's face on Zoom as they sort of have an aha moment you know, about understanding how they can operationalize accessibility into their work and then, as they've known better, they've done better. Um, you know, we—I feel like we have to battle ableism, whether it's um, intentional or unconscious, um, sort of one person at a time. And um, you know, as we as we approach it that way, we can also then, by extension, sort of um, tackle it systemically. And you know, creating that system change um, and like you were saying, making people see that there's an advantage to applying that universal design principle um, because the more accessible something is, the wider the audience is. And, and for various, for virtually everything we do in society, you want the widest audience possible. So why would you not want to learn about how you could you know, increase your audience's ability to access whatever it is that you have to offer them?
0: Yeah, when, it, when I think about sort of the COVID-19 pandemic and all the information, um, I was heavily involved in my grandmother's care. She lived by herself and, um, you know, me and my mother were primary caretakers in terms of being with her often and helping, making sure all of her needs were met. But, you know, she had, a, she had a giant tablet, but even on that giant tablet, she would try to pull up the information and it simply wasn't in a print that she could read. And luckily we were with her to be able to, to read it for her. And so she could get that information, but not everybody has that same, you know, the the same access to family or resources or caretakers and everyone's situation is different. So um, yeah, I, I, I think about that a lot in terms of just trying to get the information, just the basics, right? Because so much about this, this pandemic has been, what are the emergency orders? Like, what are the recommendations? What is the next thing happening? Um, we've kind of gone over some of the ways that, um, you know, COVID 19 has brought up these accessibility issues. You talked about some of the things that you've done to address those and, and, and some of those initiatives. Can you talk a little bit about the work itself and how your field work has sort of changed and adapted? During the COVID nineteen pandemic, obviously we're on a Zoom call, so I know everyone's familiar with the Zoom calls now.
3: Exactly. Um, well, so personally, you know, my my work went from being um, deaf and hard of hearing focused to at my own department to a much wider scope. Um, again, that comes closer to universal design. You know, as far as the emergency management um, activities that I've done. Um, but all of that has been virtual. The emergency um, operations center, uh, for the, I believe the first time ever, went virtual for COVID, and all of that um, uh, has been done in a process that we've pretty much uh, st- described as building the plane while we're flying it, um, and and uh, making it possible for um, emergency managers and and then you know ultimately the unified command to be able to do business. Um, uh, regardless of whether we can be, um, you know, six feet away from each other or not. Um, and so, you know, at the same time, as all of that has evolved um, and i you know, I've learned a lot on the job. I'm not a career emergency manager. And so I've learned a lot during this process, um, but everyone has, even people who've been in emergency management for a very long time have adapted their way of, of work um, because of COVID, it's just like everyone else. It's It really truly has been life-changing for people. Um, but at the same time, I'm responsible for my own program at BDDHH. And so it's been, um, you know, a process there too. For us, it's meant that we've had to re- work remotely and rely on technology more than we ever have before. Um, and unfortunately it's meant an almost complete hiatus of our face-to-face um, sort of outreach and field services. And that includes, Um, you know, taking a pause on home visits for um, assistive technology assessments. Um, But we've started to try and, of course, adapt and provide workshops by Zoom and do virtual outreach by, you know, attending um, virtual conferences and having that sort of uh, virtual uh, information table, you know, approach. Um, And we, you know, for COVID, we created a COVID-19 resource page that has deaf-friendly content on it. Um, and done things that have not really been done as much in the past, I guess, which is actually partnering um, with uh, other organizations to be able to provide some uh, ASL translations to some of their, you know, COVID-19 content. Um, but all of it's been a really big change. On the other hand, our uh, Virginia Relay, um, one of our programs that uh, includes traditional relay and remote conference captioning, has seen exponential increases in usage during COVID, um, which is a positive. So it, it really has kind of um, you know, impacted every aspect of the work. Um, field work right now doesn't look anything like you know, what it did before COVID because of the, you know, the importance of making sure that uh, social distancing guidelines Followed and um, so what that will look like after COVID, I think everybody is kind of waiting to see. It's it's that uh, what how it was in the before times is is maybe not how it's going to be in the after times.
1: Absolutely, I mean I think it's so funny to talk about right because on the one hand we talk um, especially I think before COVID people used to talk about like you know technology makes things easier and brings you know people closer and then you know when all this hit and everything did go virtual. I think a lot of times we realize, you know, we rely on technology so much. And even though it is, you know, we're so fortunate to be able to do these things virtually to have this video call and to be able to make those adjustments, but even still, you know, in the virtual world or with technology, not everything is like Ren said before, it's not an even playing field, depending upon, you know, your caregivers, your community, things like that. Um, And you've done a good job of giving some great examples, but I'm curious as to, um, were there any accessibility issues that y'all hadn't seen before, particularly um, when working with um, the deaf community as um, your organization does? Um, Were there any issues that you didn't notice before COVID-19 that really brought some um, new issues with accessibility into the light? Or was it, I mean, I know y'all are, you know, you do this every day. So again, for y'all, this is the norm. But um, what were some, were some there's some really jarring examples of how accessibility was cut because of COVID-19?
3: Right, yeah. So um, no pun intended, but, you know, COVID-19 is sort of unmasked. Um, accessibility issues that have always been there, you know, I mean, you all at the Disability Law Center know that, that, um, you know, or else there wouldn't be a need for the Disability Law Center. There have, you know, been ac- accessibility issues that uh, pre-existed COVID, um, but some have, of course, been more um, uh, highlighted or, uh, you know, particularly difficult to deal with under pandemic you know, conditions. Uh, you know we're, we're just recently finally seeing data, you know, that show what we've known anecdotally from the very start, which is that, you know, people with disabilities have been in- disproportionately impacted by COVID, you know, across uh, on, on a lot yeah. of levels and, um, you know, everything from um, getting ac- access to accommodations um, at hospitals when there are visitation restrictions, um, you know, fighting for reasonable modifications to policy. Um, uh, because of um people's uh possible in- inability to to wear a mask um you know dealing with the the social distancing and masking guidelines um have really been some of the major challenges that we've seen um you know deaf-blind individuals particularly have been impacted by the social distancing because they rely on close interaction and touch for communication um, you know, deaf and hard of hearing people who rely on the facial grammar of ASL or lip reading you know, have been continually frustrated and cut off because of the use of, the, of face coverings, which of course are you know, meant to be um, a health precaution but has gotten in the way of, um, of their ability to communicate and so, um, which is one of the reasons why we did ask, you know, um, when the initial uh, executive order came out, for there to be some clarification that there can be some, you know, exemption for people to be able to take their mask down in order to be able to communicate with people who are deaf or hard of hearing. Um, there have been some clear masks that have come out, but they're not widely available. Some of the first ones that were available were really intended for the medical setting. And so, especially when we were prioritizing PPE um, in the beginning, you know, their masks were hard to come by. By now, people have found sort of their favorite mask, uh, you know, what works for them. Um, But again, it's uh, difficult because uh, that communication barrier has been there and the deaf and hard of hearing community really has struggled um, with that. but across the board accessibility has been a challenge, not just for deaf, hard of hearing people. Um, you know, for instance, when there was the change when public transportation came sort of back online after lockdown and that there was the requirement for people to load onto buses from the back, which is not always the accessible entrance, right? So people who, um, uh, there were people for whom that, that didn't work as well. Um, and then uh, there are people who struggle with access to testing because they cannot or do not drive Uh, but the testing site near them is drive through only, right? So, um, you know, there there are challenges that I think are still out there, um, but there have been some positives too, like the increase in availability of telemedicine, which reportedly has been a a benefit to um, people, individuals who are homebound or who lack transportation. um, But at the same time, telemedicine is sometimes not deaf friendly because doctors don't always know how to include an interpreter in the interaction. So, um, you know, it's, it, 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 there have been many challenges um, and some of them have, um, you know, been mitigated and some of them haven't.
0: So it, it part of your, your position as it was created was really sort of um, taking you from where you were and kind of making, uh, I what was the word you used? This, like, universal collective.
3: Unified command.
0: Unified command, which sounds like a a science fiction term. I love
3: it. (laughs) I know, right?
0: Um, but obviously, you know, your whole job is to work with these other organizations and to, you know, to provide this knowledge and this information, how, how does this work impact the awareness you're able to bring to them and how does that impact the community that you serve?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have had people reach out to me on an individual basis and, you know, by email or by telephone and say um, that they appreciated my questions, which I think is funny because you, know, you, you hope that you're not always that person who's always asking the, you know, the hard questions. Um, but people have really appreciated being introduced to information that, honestly, has has been out there for a long time, but they've not had the need or opportunity or uh, wherewithal to be exposed to it before, right? So, um, you know, I've had people thank me for making them aware, which I think is a, a positive, you know, step. I will have to say that, you know, I I have been. Uh, really, uh, what's got me, kept me going through this really challenging time, um, has been that um, there's been an overwhelming acceptance of the idea of accessibility, um, and and uh, acceptance of you know having to again operationalize it. Meaning, ha- yeah, accessibility is sort of this. Is it a philosophy, or is you know it needs to not just be a feel good thing. You know, it's it's a it's required. things need to be accessible Um, but how do how do you go about doing that people are relieved to be given uh, information that helps them to make it happen because I think there's a disconnect there between the idea that things should be accessible and understanding how to make them accessible so that part has been really gratifying to be able to again provide you know information to people who are subject matter experts in their own areas um, you know, more aware of, of some of the principles that disability services agencies use every day. Um, you know, the other side of it, too, is that there's. I've been able to um, establish some really great networks of professional um, uh, people, but also stakeholder, you know, involvement has been important. Um, prior to COVID. Um, usually say in Virginia that, you know, the most sort of uh, most likely emergency scenario is a hurricane forming you know, in the Atlantic and it's coming toward the eastern coast and uh, we need to activate a state of emergency in a localized area and uh, Usually, emergency management would reach out to um, you know organizations that support people with disabilities in those localities to be able to kind of brace for impact, right? And say for them to be able to say, what do you need? How do you need it? Um, so whether that's contacting um, centers for independent living or um, uh, paratransit uh, vendors, or uh, whether that's you know local emergency management people, that sort of you know contact process was very limited to those localities and the incident would last for a short period of time and then it would be over and we'd wait for the next one to happen um for COVID it that is not what happened it's not only statewide it's nationwide and worldwide and so uh, there is no locality that was not touched by COVID and so at the very beginning there was recognition that we need to be able to again have kind of a, a um and on on-the-ground snapshot of what was happening, you know, out in the communities um, and for these various populations. And so we set up, um, and I say we, the Access and Functional Needs Advisory Committee members sort of assisted me in networking, a very informal, not meant to be exclusive um, sort of call list. And we started having what we've called, we've named um, Access and Functional Needs Partners Calls, and that has uh, brought in state agencies, local governments, um, the Red Cross, FEMA Office of Disability Integration. um, uh, It's involved centers for independent living, um, disability resource centers, area agencies on aging. Um, At various times, you know, there have been anywhere from 100 people on the call to 20 people on the call. Right. And so we've gone from at the start of COVID, that was an everyday call. Then we have gradually over time, you know, eased it down three times a week, once a week. Um, right now we're at a once a month pace um, because things have kind of leveled out. Um, but in the end, my point is that um, that outreach to stakeholders, both governmental and non governmental, to, to be able to have that channel for them to be able to. Um, Provide information about concerns and needs. It's been really critical, but then that's also been a way for me um, and uh, you know other uh, subject matter experts to uh, push out information and resources back out to those same representatives, so that they can get information to their stakeholders. Um, whether that be you know, hey, there's going to be a webinar that you might be interested in, or here's some new guidance that has to do with um, you know people with disabilities, or here's a, you know. Here's a, a, a great website that has all kinds of accessible content. You know, pass this along, and so that conduit of information has been um, really critical to our ability to, you know, um, course correct and 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 make changes and um, you know solve problems as, as they've been identified. Um, identifying those problems is is really you know uh, an, an important part. So the Access and Functional Needs Office or position was never meant to be a be all end all. Um, And it's it's really um, evolved over the last year. And um, so hopefully what it's done is set in a way a sort of a precedent that again, um, involving accessibility uh, in all efforts across the board really will make it uh, better in the long run for the community. Um, really long answer to your question, but, um, you know, it's the impact of COVID on every community, you know, has been significant. And so, um, you know, that means that it's also going to be significant to the organizations that are supporting those communities.
1: Yeah, I definitely heard um, so You mentioned, uh, you talked a lot about um, how, you know, first of all, accessibility is law, and what I love about what you guys do is that y'all see it as a standard not as something that's like um an add-on it's something that we should you know that should be at the forefront of all of our work and should be um you know not something that you have to educate people on but something that is already um you know in in the workings in the first place um we've kind of we've really touched on this a lot um in terms of y'all's work but are there any Um, other ways. And I'm curious, particularly, you know, after COVID, um, I mean, I know things will never go back to quote, unquote, normal. But but are there any ways that you think technology, um, particularly going forward, will, um, you know, change permanently? Or really, um, have you seen those changes come through already in terms of technology, in terms of helping um, people adapt in, you know, the disabled
0: community?
3: Yeah, well, you know, as far as, um, you know, how it has impacted the deaf community, you know, deaf and hard of hearing people have been doing video communication thing far, you know, longer than the rest of of the general population and the world's just now caught up. Um, You know, video phones have been an integral part of the way that deaf and hard of hearing people communicate for a long time. Um, But of course, it's been a learning curve for everyone Um, and virtual meeting platforms um, have really changed how we do business. Um, But at the same time as learning just how to use those platforms in general, there's been a lot of learning about how to integrate accessibility into that. So whether that's integrating remote caption services um, into um, a a Zoom call or how to include interpreters to be able to provide uh, um, services remotely. Um, And even down to the minutia, like how to pin the interpreter and the speaker at the same time, um, you know, or which platforms are deaf friendly and which ones are not, Um, you know, but I think that uh, there's still room to to learn there because hosts uh, for web events and webinars who are not, again, um, used to um, planning for accessibility have not yet learned how to do those um, Uh, accessibility features. And so my agency has been providing, you know, information pretty steadily to um, government agencies, local governments, um, private organizations, um, asking how to make their their online presentations more accessible. Um, And usually that's because those entities have received a request for an accommodation and they don't really know how to go about addressing that need. So there's a lot of of education um, happening. But as far as how people communicate, I think we can't forget that not everyone has access to the internet. So, you know, part of, um, you know, some of the funding that has been, uh, um, you know, set aside and planned for be able to expand access to broadband um, across the state to people who don't already have it, that's going to be a major factor because, you know, if technology is going to be the way that uh, we're going to communicate from now on, uh, because people have gotten used to it or they see how uh, helpful it is, then we need to make sure it's it's available to to you know to people who need it. So that's one factor. Um, you know, as far as how it's how it's changed our how our organization communicates, um, you know, we've we've figured out how to do our work remotely um, and. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but I'd say that we've um, you know, adapted uh, when we needed to, and we can build on that and, and only get better at it as we go forward.
0: So we've encompassed a lot during this conversation. Again, you're clearly a very busy woman um, and doing amazing work. Um, if people are interested in learning more about what you do, or just being like, man, I've been having difficulty, like trying to get this information or access my, you know, uh, access my vaccine or, you know, having any of these issues. Um, how do they get in touch with you? What are some of your suggestions practically? Just give us the
3: 411. Right. So, um, you know, uh, as far as my department is concerned, you know, our, our website is, vddhh.org. And we have, you know, tabs for each of our services um, there across the top of the page, which includes uh, everything from technology assistance to interpreting uh, coordination for state agencies um, and information about uh, uh, qualified interpreters um, in the Commonwealth. So there's all kinds of information available there on that page. Um, And as far as learning more about uh, the deaf community, uh, you know, you, I would recommend uh, contacting Virginia Association of the Deaf, which is VAD.org. Um, and uh, especially if you're of a mind to be able to learn uh, ASL, uh, of course, learning from a person who's deaf is, is the best um, way to go with that. And of course, there are, um, our website has information on how you can uh, learn ASL uh, through other resources like community colleges and uh, community organizations. Um, as far as my work with access and functional needs um, for uh, emergency management, all of that has sort of evolved during the emergency, and you know, not a lot of that is listed online yet. Um, we've tried to, um, you know, focus on taking care of um, of issues, and I, there's not been much done as far as you know making that. Um, information available on the website. They do have, we do have um, uh, a website, uh, of course for VDEM and there is uh, another website that they, they run which is um, vaemergency.gov, uh, which has all kinds of information for the community to be able to learn about emergency preparedness. Um, so you know, there, there is information out there. Um, And, you know, hopefully we're headed toward the the light at the end of the tunnel for, uh, you know, activities opening up and more and more people becoming vaccinated. So if uh, people have questions about vaccination, um, they should go to vaccinate.virginia.gov in order to be able to to get that information. And again, you can also um, call the the call center, the uh, uh, website is not the only way to get that information. Um, And so they can call the call center at um, 877-VAX-NVA. And the numbers for that is 877-829-4682. And remember that now we have a a feature on there called ASL Now, uh, which if you click that and you're a video phone user, you can be, directed uh, or uh, you can be directed uh, to a call agent who uses ASL.
1: Karen thank you so much for um, all this groundwork that you've laid today in the interview and for covering um, so much and such a you know expansive topic that um, I think you know no matter how much we know about disability it's always good to have more awareness and to have this information. Um, so as we wrap up here today, is there anything else um, you would like us to know or our audience to know about um, your organization?
3: Um, I think probably my last message would be that um, this is always going to be a work in progress, that there's always going to be room for improvement. Um, anytime we're made aware of accessibility barriers, then it's our uh, responsibility to um, mitigate those barriers whether we work for a government entity or we work for a private organization um, and so always again asking that next question of is this accessible um, and and that will go a long way to improving uh, not only access but quality of life for people with disabilities and if we all, we can all sort of bake that in to our processes whether it's in our business or in our daily life um, then that's a, a benefit to everyone. That's probably my 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 last. Um, that's my hope. And again, uh, it's I don't want to be Pollyanna about it. It's um, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of effort and education. But if everyone uh, takes responsibility for it, then we can make progress um, and and be moving toward a more inclusive um, society.
0: Well, I always think hope oh, is a great yeah. note to end on. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your time and all this great information. You've been great.
3: Sure, thank you.
0: And now, a DLCV highlight.
2: Recently, DLCV was contacted by an individual who is deaf and communicates the American sign language after they were denied access to a COVID-19 vaccine by Ryan's health system. DLCD intervened right away, outreaching the rides health system in question to inform them of their relevant state and federal requirements to hold 19 vaccine administration. With further help, to the individual and their spouse, who is also deaf, will hit an alternate vaccine administration site in their community, offering on demand Rock In that soon appointments. Thanks to our rapid response, the individual and their spouse were able to successfully access their first dose of the Hodonite to that, that soon within 48 hours of contacting DLCD.
0: Again, I want to have a shout out to Karen. You were an amazing guest, and we learned so much from you during this interview. It was incredible.
1: Yes, absolutely. Thank you again, Karen, for coming on today. I mean, she just brought so much passion and energy, and just like the wealth of knowledge and the amount of topics she was able to cover so eloquently was just amazing. And I, um, again, I just really appreciate her taking the time um, to tell us everything and just pour her heart into everything. So I'm really excited for everybody else to um, just continue their education because she just had so much to
0: offer. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to be linking all of the resources that you talked about in the show notes so you will have access to it. Uh, We're all on our own journeys to make sure that we're being as inclusive and as accessible as possible for folks with disabilities. From personal life to our jobs and to our community. So we're all on this journey together. So we just really appreciate her coming out and thanking you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Feel free to visit us online at dlcb.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at DisabilityLawVA. We also have a Facebook that is the Disability Law Center of Virginia. Share us with your friends. Leave us a comment. We love to chat. Until next time, I'm Molly Carter. And I am Ren Fizewski. And this has been Rights Here, Rights Now.